Good morning, everyone. For those of you whom I have not met, my name is Andrew. Um, I'm one of the, the leaders here, and I am so excited today to get to share with you a word from Psalm 110. Um, like Brittany mentioned, we've been going through a, a study of the Psalms this Advent season, looking at this tension that we live in as followers of Jesus, this already not yet kind of tension where longing is a very real part of our lives, and yet so is joy. Because of the Messiah, the one foretold in these Psalms, those of us who live in a place of longing can also experience joy because Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. Um, as I was preparing this, this message, um, I was hit a couple different times that a message uh, around Christmas time that talks about filling the nation with corpses and Melchizedek is kind of an odd choice, um, but I trust that, that it'll be a good one and the Spirit has some stuff for us uh, to see here today. Um, so like I was saying, uh, Advent is a time of anticipation, where we get to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. That's where we get to experience that joy that satisfies our longing. And, and if you have spent any time in the story of the Bible, you'll see that God's people are very used to living in a place of anticipation. Before the Messiah's first coming, when this psalm was written, that anticipation was one that, that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now on, on this side of the coming of Jesus, we still wait with anticipation, waiting for his return. A couple weeks ago, my brother Dawson led us through the end of the book of Daniel and, and opened that time talking about how we live in this uh, kind of odd period of history, some call the already not yet. And he used some, some very apt analogies. Um, he used kind of the analogy of D-Day, this battle that was so decisive that some say at that point the war was won. The tide had shifted, the, war, the outcome of the war was determined, but there were still many battles to fight. We, they were in an already not yet. The war had been decided, but not yet was it done in its entirety. Or the other reality that may be much more applicable to some of us um, who are parents, this reality of bedtime. Okay, the clocks hit 7.30, the kids are in their pajamas, they're technically in bed. The, the war is decided. They are going to sleep, but the battle's not over yet. We live in this place of tension, the already not yet. And really, Advent is this time where we are invited to engage with that tension, where we can take inventory of, of the discomfort that we feel in that tension, but also acknowledge the hope that we have in the waiting. See, I believe that, that today our souls long for deliverance. 
The reality of that already not yet is that, that we know the deliverer has come, but we're still, our bodies still ache for deliverance. We feel the effects of a broken world, our souls long. And so last week we got to look at uh, Psalm 2, this psalm that, that foretold this coming king who was so mighty and had so much authority that even the plans of the most mighty people on earth against him, he just looked at and laughed. So we saw a king that was mighty and strong. Today, we get an opportunity. Uh, in my mind, it's kind of like this diamond. The, the diamond doesn't change, and yet today we have the opportunity to spin the diamond a little bit, to see a new facet of it, a new layer of beauty. Maybe as sunlight's hitting it, we see new colors reflected and refracted through it. So today we're gonna see that this, this Messiah that is foretold is a mighty king, but he's far more than just a mighty king. He's far more. So with that, I'm gonna pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, I am mindful today that the things of which we're about to speak are much higher than my ability to comprehend them and far more high than my ability to convey them. And so I ask, Spirit, that you would show up. You love to glorify the Messiah. You love to see him lifted up and exalted, and I pray that today in this place he would be, that we would be humbled and awed and invigorated at a view of this Messiah who has come and is coming again. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before we dig into the text of the psalm, I do want to give a little bit of context. And I think uh, we'll actually spend a decent amount of time talking about the context because knowing where this psalm occurs in the course of history and within the book of the psalms, I think gives us a, a very clear insight into what it's about. Firstly, looking at the historical context, this is a psalm of David. Now, if you haven't spent much time in the book of Psalms, or this is fairly new to you, the Psalms are a, a compilation of a book of prayers, 150 prayers that were written by numerous people throughout numerous years and compiled and orchestrated in a beautiful and miraculous way. Now, about half of these psalms were written by a man named David. This is one of them. And David was a king of Israel. He was one of God's mighty kings that he had blessed his people with to lead them and, and lead them back as, as, as we, as people, tend to go astray that God allowed David to kind of continue to call people back. Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart, and he was a good king. He was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. He was a flawed man. He was a broken man. 
And so we see that, that though David was a good king, he has some promises that God gave him. God promises to David that through his line, through his offspring, God would raise up a king whose throne would know no end. That though David was an imperfect king, he, he couldn't bring peace to the land, that this this foretold one, the Messiah who would come through David's line would bring peace. And so here at the outset of this psalm, we have David acknowledge, the Lord says to my Lord, he's saying there there is one who is coming who is far better than I am. We as people often uh, default to trusting in human authority. We just went through an election season, and it is full every time of these declarations of, you can, you can trust me, I can help, I can fix these things. But the reality is, is what David's seeing here is, I, I can't do this. There is one who is coming that is higher than me. God has made a promise. He is bringing a Messiah. That Messiah will bring peace. That Messiah's throne will know no end. And so I want you to imagine with me reading this, reading this psalm, seeing this picture of this glorious Messiah as someone living in the time of David, someone who's seen kings come and go, who's who's been disappointed by kings. Would there not be a deep longing, God, I'm looking forward to that. You said you're coming with a Messiah who's gonna bring peace. I long for that peace. Or maybe jump forward in time and imagine what it would be like for our friend Daniel that we just got done studying for him to be reading this psalm, going, God, I, I know you said that there would be a Messiah, one of David's offspring, and yet here I am in the midst of exile. It would be a bittersweet psalm to read. God, I know you're coming, but you're not here right now. I don't see you in the midst of my, of my circumstances. Your Messiah isn't on the scene yet. There's longing there. So this psalm would be read from a place of, of that already not yet. God, I know you've made the promise, but I don't see it yet. Or for us, God, I, I know Jesus came, but thing, things aren't fixed yet. I still experience sickness. I still experience loss. My tears are very real. You have not yet come to rule in the midst of your enemies, like Psalm 110 says, in that glorious and final way. So that's a little bit of the the historical context, but now I wanna talk about the context of where this fits, and this is the part that I get the most excited about, where this psalm fits within the context of the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is divided into five parts. This psalm, Psalm 110, is towards the front of the fifth book of the Psalms. And the fifth book of the Psalms starts with seven psalms that are structured in a beautiful way. Now, one of the ways in which the Hebrew authors often 
they use a number of literary devices to call our attention to some specific things. But one of the, the tools they use is this tool of mirroring. So oftentimes you'll see in scripture that, that a, a phrase will be set up and then a phrase will appear later and it's, and it's set up to be somewhat of a mirror or a funnel that directs our attention to what's in the middle. So if you think about it in terms of like back to go to you know, elementary school poetry, where you're talking about you, you know, you A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, it would be kind of like A, B, C, B, A. So these things, the bookends, the A's, the B's are all pointing back to the center. Our attention is meant to be drawn to the center, to the focal point of what the, the author is trying to draw our attention to. And so we see this kind of same thing set up around Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 um, is, is set up with three psalms on either side of it. The first three psalms, 107, 108, 109, I will say for ease of, of discussion that these are pleas for deliverance or to use the, the terminology that we've been using in this series, these are, are psalms of longing. So Psalm 107, the psalmist is recounting numerous stories of people in desperate circumstances, people who find themselves in the desert or in prison or in the depths of the sea. And again and again and again, the psalmist says, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. The psalmist is, is making very clear, we live in a world that is filled with trouble Here's all these stories of God's people being in distress, longing for God to deliver them. Or in Psalm 108, the psalmist recounts what it's like to face military opposition. In verse 11, he says, have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Can you feel the longing in that? God, we're being oppressed. We're being attacked. And out on the battlefield, it doesn't feel like you're with us. Salvation by my own hand is, is in vain. I need you to show up. Would you deliver there's longing there. Or in Psalm 109, the psalmist is facing slander and lies hurled against them. Starting in verse 21, the psalmist says, but you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O oh Lord, my God. I'm like a shadow at evening. 
I'm vanishing, God. Would you show up? Would you deliver? I'm crying out to you in my longing. And so we see this kind of funnel bringing us towards Psalm 110. There is longing. God's people are pleading for him to deliver. But then in, in the other side, we see in the mirror, we see praise for God's deliverance. Or in, in this sermon series terms, we see joy. On one side, we see, God, would you help us? I'm longing for you to deliver me. On the other side, we see, God, you showed up. You showed up. I'm so filled with joy because you showed up. In 111, verse 2, the psalmist says, Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous work to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. So on this one side, we see God, will you show up? On the other side, we see the psalmist remembering, not only did you show up, but I know that you remember your covenant forever. There is joy there. Or in Psalm 112, as the psalmist begins to recount the effects of a redeemed life, he says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. You feel the joy in that? God, you have come and you've done a work in me. You're bringing about new life and joy. And lastly, in Psalm 113, we see the psalmist kind of at the pinnacle, looking around and asking the question, Who is like this God? I can't find anyone else like him. It says, who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down from the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. So on one side, we have the psalmist who feels like they are but a shadow at evening fading away. And then on the other, we see a God who lifts his people up from the ashes. We see longing and joy. And I think that that it is not uh, a coincidence that the Psalms are set up this way. This is, this is the Hebrew author's way of drawing our attention, funneling us down. Because centered in between the pleas for deliverance and the praise for deliverance is the deliverer himself. Where longing and joy meet. Where these two things that feel as opposite as opposites could be we find the deliverer himself. The one who satisfies our pleas and the one who is worthy of our praise, we find the Messiah. So I want to ask you today, 
where you find yourself. Maybe for some of you, you understand very well today the longing. Maybe some of you are are dealing with sickness or loss or besetting sin. The brokenness of this world feeling like you are that shadow at evening. God, would you deliver me? The salvation of man is in vain, but I trust in you, but I long. Or maybe today you find yourself on the other side. God, you showed up. You have remembered your covenant. There is none like you filled with joy. Or maybe like most of us, you feel both. God, I long for you to show up. I've seen it. I've tasted it. I'm I'm reminded of it, but I still long for it. Would you see today, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, would your eyes be drawn towards the center, towards the deliverer, this Messiah who has come to to answer the, the cries of his people? Would you see him today? So now I want to talk a little bit about this Messiah himself. Who is this Messiah? Our eyes have been drawn to Psalm 110. The psalmist has done their job. Now let's ask the question, who is this Messiah? And we'll look at two things in particular. First, we see that this Messiah is not just a king, but he's a priest as well. And this is, this is a, a little crazy. It, it, it might not stand out to us in our context, but for the original uh, Jewish readers, this would have stuck out like a sore thumb. You have phrases in here. Your, your mighty scepter goes forth. That's kingly language. That's what a king does. The king is the one holding the scepter. It says, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's kingly language. This is, this is no doubt a king that the psalmist is talking about. And then they say, you are a priest forever, and you would have heard the loudest record scratch in the world. Like, wait, what? Kings were not priests. These were two separate bloodlines. In, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish system, I mean, there is no option for multi-classing. You don't get to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a few levels in king and a few levels in priest, and we'll call it good. These were two separate bloodlines entirely. But here we see a Messiah who unites both offices. We see him as a king who is able to defend and redeem his people from an enemy that's without but also a priest who is able to redeem and defend and restore his people from the enemy within. He is not just an outward-focused God, Messiah, but he is inward. He looks to restore us in the deepest parts of ourselves, ultimately restoring the connection between God and man. Secondly, This priest is eternal. 
Now this is another one of those things that may stand out to you as we read this or as we heard it sung, that this priest is of the order of Melchizedek. It's a strange name. It's a character that does not show up often in the scriptures. This is one of three places, I believe it is, that he shows up. And one of the other times is referring back to this. But see, in, in the Jewish system, priests were typically of the line of Aaron. So if you think back to Moses and Aaron, Aaron was this priest. His lineage was a line of priests, but they were imperfect. They were imperfect in three significant ways. First, they were only ever able to offer sacrifices as a covering for sin. They could never take away sin. God's people were in constant need of sacrifice. And so the blood of lambs and bulls would continue to be spilt, covering over the sin, but never taking it away, never removing it entirely. Secondly, they themselves were sinners. So this priest who was, who was meant to be the one to come and stand in the gap between God and man first had to make himself right. First had to come and make sacrifices for their own sins, their own weakness, their own brokenness. And lastly, they were imperfect because they were mortal. So not only was there a priest who would come and take care of the nation of Israel today, but there would have to be a different one when he passed away, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. The need was always there. They were imperfect. But what the psalmist is saying here, or what, the God, what God is saying through the psalmist, is that this Messiah is not of the line of Aaron, the line of Aaron served its purpose, but it was imperfect. And there needed to be a higher one, a better one, a different order to serve the needs of God's people, the order of Melchizedek. Now, this was a character that shows up back in Genesis, predating any of the priests to the line of Aaron and he comes to Abraham and he blesses Abraham and Abraham offers him a sacrifice, gives him 10% of his spoils. And what this, what this character Melchizedek is pointing forward to is he is pointing forward to a Messiah who is not limited by mortal life. In Genesis it says that Melchizedek uh, had no lineage no beginning of days or end of days. The writer of Hebrews writes of this Messiah who's spoken of in Psalm 110. He says, he became a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He did not descend from the line of Aaron, but rather he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to have an advocate on my behalf, an indestructible one sounds awfully good. This priest is bulletproof. 
There's no end of him advocating on our behalf. He does not grow weary or tired. He is indestructible, and he is on the move for his people. Secondly, while the the priests of the line of Aaron would offer sacrifices that could only ever cover sin but never take it away, this priest offers a fully sufficient sacrifice. I'm going to tip my cards a little bit. This Messiah that we're talking about is Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says this, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. This is the line of Aaron. They come, the same sacrifices day after day after day, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that this Messiah, this one who comes in the order of Melchizedek, he offers a sacrifice that is good once and for all. There is no need for another sacrifice. That's why Jesus on the cross is able to say, it is finished. The sacrifice is good, it is complete. There's no need for another priest. There's no need for you to work or or pay penance. It is done, it is good, it is complete, it's full. This priest is good, he satisfies. He shows up to deliver his people and he does it fully. So I want to ask, why is this important? What what does this priest of the order of Melchizedek have to do with longing and joy? What does this have to do with longing and joy? See, I think we, we often think of the Messiah, and this rightly, that he has come to to handle my personal sin to restore me personally to a relationship with God, and that is true. But here in Psalm 110, we see that the Messiah has actually come to do far more than just that. We see that this Messiah has come not just to individually deliver his people, but he has come to dismantle the power structures that are at work against him and his people. This is not just about absolving of sin, but it's actually undoing brokenness in the world. One of the the things that, that caught my eye as I was preparing for this is Psalm 110, verse six. It says, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That wasn't the part. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, I don't know if, uh, if you guys have the ESV translation. As you guys, if you do, you might notice a footnote on that word chiefs. And that word can also be translated as the head. 
One of the interesting things in reading this is that that word, chiefs or the head, is the same word that God uses back in Genesis 3 when he says, I'm sending one who will crush the head of the enemy. So what I I think is is powerful here is there is real judgment going on in in this passage. Rebellious kings and leaders will be judged. But far more than that, what the Messiah is coming to do is to dismantle the power structures and crush the head of the serpent. Every bit of brokenness, pain, sadness, sickness, and death that is a result of rebellion will be made new. So as we sit here on this side of the second coming of Jesus, as we sit in our longing, this psalm gives us a view forward to say that, God, you are coming back and you will crush the head of the serpent. You will deliver your people because your sacrifice is sufficient. Your blood poured out for us is good enough to undo the work of rebellion to take children who are wayward and make them a place at home, to invite us back to the table. This priest's sacrifice is good. It's enough. The enemy will be crushed. If you notice in this this psalm, the enemy is not fighting back. The enemy can't fight back. The enemy has made a footstool. And I don't know how many of you have used a footstool before, but it generally doesn't fight back very much. This thing is in submission under the foot of the Messiah. It's going to happen. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Now, whatever the Lord says is true. So when he adds on top of that and says, I swear and I'm not gonna regret it, I'm not gonna turn back from it, we should take notice. This is happening. The enemy will be crushed. The head of the serpent will be crushed. So that's a view of that Messiah. Lastly, I wanna end on a view of his people. If that's God, if that's this Messiah, then who are we? two things. It says his people are willing warriors. That they give themselves freely. They volunteer. See, the priest has come to town. This priest Messiah has liberated. And instead of the liberated people saying, okay, thanks, I'll see you later. I'm headed back home. They say, no, I'm going with you. I'm giving of myself freely. I I choose to follow you because you are good. There is joy there. I can't wait to go with that Messiah. See, we've been given a vision of the end. We know how it all shakes out. And so we can go freely and confidently following the king. Secondly, His people are priests just like him. 
It says that, that his people give themselves freely and they are arrayed in holy garments. That's, that's priestly robes. So not only are his people being liberated and then they're saying, okay, I'm coming with you. But this Messiah says, all right, you're a priest with me. Come, let's do this work together. Okay, I've, I've delivered you. Do you want to go tell other people that I deliver? Do you want to go tell your friends and your neighbors and your family and your coworkers that there is a Messiah who delivers? We're invited into the work. We're not delivered and shuffled back to the bench. He says, come with us. We're invited into the work with him. This Messiah is good, yes? Yes.